1953, a strange story crept out of the Philippines when newspapers began reporting on the Dracula girl, a young Filipino vagrant who had been arrested for prostitution and who had now appeared to be facing even darker powers as she battled with a pair of tormentors, collectively known as The Thing. For over two weeks, doctors, reporters, prison guards and inmates watched over the strange behaviour of the young girl, completely at a loss for what to do, until eventually, in stepped a Protestant pastor with a penchant for evangelism and a conviction that he knew exactly what to do in the situation. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 8 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben as always. This week we don't have a lot to talk about from the start so we can jump right into it. do want to apologise. Um, I'm really hoping this, the microphone's not going to pick this up. But I've got a, a nesting pair of doves or pigeons or something like right above my window. They keep doing that thing. Um, so I'm really hoping you're not going to hear that. Um, we, we'll see. So if you hear that in the middle of it, it's not anything spooky going on. It's just a pair of nesting pigeons in my garden. Anyway, with that said, let's move straight into the episode. This is Clarita Villanueva and The Thing. With an 86% Roman Catholic population, the Philippines is one of the most Christian-dominated societies in the entire Southeast Asia region. In the 1950s, it was a country still suffering from the protracted hangover of the Second World War. Whilst it was undergoing great leaps in recovery and reconstruction, it was still struggling to recover from long-term, widespread economic disparity and rural degradation. A country that had seen foreign occupation for centuries, it was a new era with new challenges, but one of undeniable positivity in regards to the future, at least in the relatively better-off urban areas. Amongst the busy streets, young women walked carefree in high-cut summer dresses and markets filled with textiles, street food and consumer electronics popped up throughout the main cities. Their own high streets lined with department stores as two-tone black and red cabs gleamed under the Pacific sun. Outside of a brief two-year stint by the British, Spain had retained governing rule over the Philippines for over 300 years, from the 16th to the late 19th century. In the 16th century, the Philippines was central to the ambitions of the Spanish East Indies, with Spanish Manila the capital and the western hub of all Spanish trans-Pacific trade. During the occupation, Catholic missionaries played a large role in spreading Christianity throughout the country, which had previously been dominated by Islam, having reached the islands via traders in the Persian Gulf and the indigenous folk religions that preceded collectively known as Anatism. Despite the best efforts of the Roman Catholic missionaries to stamp out and replace many of these pre-colonial beliefs, transplanting Christianity into many, the original legends managed to survive in the minds of the majority of the Filipino population, embedded as they were into the traditional oral culture. In 1899, a Philippine revolution overthrew the colonialists and allowed the country a brief respite from outside rule, only to find itself ceded into American territory after the conclusion of the Spanish-American War. When the newly elected Philippine Republic refused to accept American rule, it opened up another period of war, lasting for three gruelling years, concluding with an American victory. 
What followed was another tumultuous period, with the American leaders extending their rule across the islands against backlash from the surviving Philippine Republic rebels. After the outbreak of World War II, the islands saw themselves once more at the mercy of colonial powers when Japan invaded and conquered in 1942, installing a puppet Philippine Republic government and occupying the country until the end of the war. The constant stream of global trade and colonial occupation allowed the Philippines to absorb an eclectic array of beliefs and folklore, and though Catholicism had reigned as the dominant religion, the colloquial twists still remained. Among these are the numerous folk stories of myths and creatures like the Tikbalang, a werehorse with disproportionately long limbs with roots in Hinduism. Originally a type of phantom, it morphed into a werehorse after the introduction of horses to the country during Spanish rule, and it maintains the half-human, half-horse shape till today. The Tikbalang dwells in dark bamboo and banana groves, or under bridges, leading travellers astray, much in the fashion of a fae, committing them to a never-ending path, at least until the victims turn their clothing inside out and free themselves from the Escher-like trap. The Aswang are some of the most prevalent and infamous of all Filipino folklore, more of an umbrella term for a group of dark creatures such as vampires, witches, ghouls and weirbeasts. Feral in nature, they feast on diets of internal organs, place curses upon unsuspecting innocents and generally revel in their evil natures, subverting the traditional values of Philippine society. In many cases, since the introduction of Catholicism, Christian themes have been introduced to the existing folklore of such beings, and many share influences with Western demonic traditions. Fanged beings with cloven hoofs, bat-like wings and vampiric tendencies are common, as is the concept of ghosts and communication with the dead via seance. Despite the prevalence and saturation of Catholicism and traditional folklore, the Philippines managed to remain free of recognisable Western biblical demons right up until 1953 when the first ever documented case of a demonic possession tore across the country and hit international headlines with such force that even the local mayor worried for the reputation of the country under such a sensational spotlight. Clarita Villanueva was born in 1935 in the city of Bacolod on the northwestern coast of the island of Negros in the Philippines. The fourth of four children and the only girl, Clarita grew up in relative poverty her mother was known locally as a spiritist and she made ends meet by holding seances and telling fortunes, whilst her father was an absent unknown. Despite its trade in sugar and status as the capital city of the Occidental Negros, Bacolod, like much of the Philippines, had suffered greatly throughout the Second World War under the tough occupation of the Japanese, with heavy damage to infrastructure and the death of more than one million civilians, many of whom were caught up in the crossfire as the Americans arrived to liberate the islands and the fighting drew out to a bitter end. After the war, Bacolod began its rebound and the sugar industry began its steady recovery due to improved trade policies. But the gap between the wealthiest planters and millers, who built up a new suburban wealth, and the poorest citizens was vast. As a single mother with a lack of education and vocation, the small Villanueva family sat firmly on the poorest end of the spectrum. If growing up in this situation wasn't already tough enough, in 1948, when she was just 12 years old, Clarita's mother passed away, and with no education, 
and after being abandoned by her elder brothers, Clarita was pushed into homelessness, living between the streets and bunkhouses and dancing for money, oftentimes turning to prostitution just to scrape by day to day. This existence of constant struggle passed by for several years, as Clarita grew from a girl into a young woman under some of the harshest conditions possible. At some point, she became curious about her father, and using money that she had saved from prostitution, took to the road and ventured to Manila, though having no idea who he was, where he lived, or if he was even still alive, she quickly ended up back on the streets, with no clue as to his whereabouts. The next few months were equally chaotic. Clarita took a job as a maid, and she met a man whom she thought would be the love of her life. After eloping with him, however, she found out the catastrophic news that, far from being her Prince Charming, he was already married and had four children. This instantly ended the relationship. Alone once more, and jobless to boot, she fell back into the ways which she knew best, working as a prostitute and taxi dancer, being paid to dance with men in bars night after night in relative anonymity. It wasn't until a series of bizarre events took place, when Clarita was aged 18 years old in the spring of 1953, that would change matters, catapulting her into the national spotlight and into newspapers worldwide. On the night of May the 9th, 1953, Clarita Villanueva was arrested while walking the streets for vagrancy and prostitution. It was more than likely not her first running with the police, who cracked down hard on the homeless, though no solid records of her teenage years remain. There are some accounts that say that she worked as a maid every now and then, but given the lack of records and the charges she found herself arrested and later tried for, it seems likely that those accounts are an attempt to clean up the story somewhat, rather than being based on anything factual. After her arrest, she was taken to the old Billabid prison, a sprawling six-acre facility in the centre of Manila. Clarita was placed into the women's detention wing to await trial. Here, she was housed with two other inmates, and the conditions were relatively poor in the decrepit old building, and the cell was decorated with little more than a wooden bed and a small iron-barred window. Built in 1865 by the Spanish colonial government, the old Bilibid prison was a large, forward-thinking and modern institution consisting of 11 single-storey buildings, including a hospital and execution chamber, enclosed by a circular perimeter wall, with each building resembling the spokes of a wheel. Originally, it was built to house over 1,100 prisoners, a figure that has since its inception, right throughout its history until today, been roundly ignored, leading the prison to become infamous for its overcrowding. During the Japanese occupation from 1942 until the end of the Second World War, it was used by the Japanese as a prisoner of war camp and one of the central hubs for transporting prisoners of war throughout the Philippines or back to Japan. In the three years that it was used, Almost 80% of all prisoners captured by the Japanese within the Philippines passed through the camp at one stage or another, with many leaving in wooden boxes, as the Japanese staff engaged heavily in the use of opium, morphine and alcohol, and ran sick prisoners, often suffering from malaria, into the ground. One survivor of the Japanese camp system in the Philippines spoke of the working conditions, saying that it was so strenuous and conditions and treatment so bad the survival of those who returned was thought to be virtually miraculous. 
Though the conditions in Bilibid were often better than in other camps across the islands, and though it did improve throughout 1943, the camp was never much of a holiday for those interred behind the dominating perimeter wall, as malnutrition, starvation and dysentery ran rampant. After the war, the camp was repurposed as a penal institution, and it's still used today under the name of the Manila City Jail. For the first two days, Clarita's incarceration passed by quietly, but that was all to change. On the night of the 11th, in the middle of the night, Clarita, along with her cellmates, were woken by the sounds of pebbles bouncing across the concrete floor, apparently being thrown from somewhere outside of the small room, through the bars of the door. After shouting for the guard, only to be told to get back into bed, Clarita lay awake, staring up at the cold ceiling. It was, however, a shocking moment for her when she realised that something in the beams was staring back at her. The thing, as she called it, leapt from the beam onto her while she lay in bed, sitting on top of her and clamping its teeth onto her flesh, biting her upper body. Terrified, her cellmates were awoken once again by the violent screams of Clarita, who was at this point almost paralysed with fear. When her cellmates asked her what was wrong, she told them that she was being bitten by two men, a larger dark figure and a second small pale creature. Perplexed, they yelled for the guards who entered the cell accompanied by the prison sergeant Guillermo Abad, along with various other guards who looked in on the cell in curiosity. When they arrived, Clarita continued to insist that she was being bitten, a suggestion that would have been strange in any circumstance, but it was even more so given that she was currently locked up in a woman's only ward of a tightly secured prison. Stranger still was the fact that all witnesses on the scene later gave testimony that they saw bite marks appear all over her body. Concentrated on her torso and neck, shoulders and upper arms, red circular marks looking suspiciously like two rows of teeth continued to materialise, culminating in a single bite on her lower body, just above her right knee. When the girl is attacked, she appears to cower before an invisible monster. Stark terror is mirrored in her dilated eyes. Then she screams in blood-curdling agony. Tears stream down her face, and then the thing apparently lets go as she literally wilts to the floor. Sometimes, she does not need to point to the fresh teeth marks on her arms or neck because the bites are too pronounced to escape notice. By 2.30am, and at a complete loss at what to do, struggling to calm Clarita down, Sergeant Abad called for the prison chaplain, Father Benito Vargas who attended the cell with Dr. Angelo Singian, first assistant in the medical examiner's office of the Manila Police Department, and his brother, Lieutenant Colonel Cesar Lucero, the Manila Chief of Police. Though all three men found themselves at a complete loss for ideas as to what they could do to help the flailing and convulsing inmate. When she did finally calm down for long enough to answer their questions, Clarita described the two men who had been tormenting her, one of which was tall, evil-looking and dark, dressed in black draping clothing, whilst the other was a short cherubic man with snow-white hair. After she answered several questions, Clarita would once again fall into a trance-like state, convulsing and screaming. Her eyes were said to have flashed like fire, while she would point to where she was being bitten, only for marks to show on her skin moments later. The next day, the Philippines daily newspaper, The Daily Mirror, 
carried the story with the predictably sensational headline, Police Medic Explodes Biting Demon's Yarn. The piece numbered the number of bites Clarita had received in her cell on the night of the attack at 20 and named her attacker as The Thing, a moniker which stuck throughout the entire affair, though it only described the larger of the two attackers, who it said was big and dark with curly hair on his head, chest and arms. He has large, sharp eyes and two fangs. His voice is a deep, echoing sound. He is shrouded in black. The following day, the story was followed up by the Manila Chronicle, who went one step further with the headline, Police Medics Probe Case of Girl Bitten by Devils. Police medical investigators failed to give a convincing explanation to the puzzling case of the girl who claimed she was being attacked by demons and who substantiated the claim with marks on her skin. At least 25 competent persons, including Manila's chief of police, Colonel Cesar Lucero, say that it is a very realistic example of a horrified woman being bitter to insanity by invisible persons. She displayed several bite marks all over her body, inflicted by nobody as far as the 25 witnesses could see. Villanueva writhed in pain, shouted and screamed in anguish whenever the invisible demons attacked her. Father Benito Vargas, Roman Catholic, OP, chairman of the NGH, who witnessed Villanueva in her fits, said it was not his to conclude any verdict, but, he said, the fact remains that I saw her bitten three times. Whilst the two demons shared the attacks on Clarita, in their story, the Manila Chronicle stated that Clarita had told them that the cherubic, shorter demon had carried out most of the biting. Meanwhile, back in Clarita's cell in the old Bilibid prison, things were not improving. Since the first attack on the 11th, Clarita had been launched into convulsions and fits daily. She admitted to having been tormented by the invisible attackers since the Sunday before she was arrested on the 3rd of May. In one outburst, she picked up a small statuette of the Virgin Mary belonging to her cellmate and attempted to smash it on the ground, though she was restrained by her cellmates before being able to carry this out. The day after the first series of attacks, on May the 12th, Clarita was taken to the medical offices in the prison for a follow-up examination. There, she met Dr. Mariano Lara, the chief medical examiner of the Manila Police Department, who, having previously sent his assistant to deal with Clarita and having heard his report, was somewhat nonchalant concerning her symptoms, especially given that his assistant had confessed that whilst the story had been perplexing, he believed it likely that Clarita had caused the bite marks herself. While she sat in the doctor's office, Dr. Lara examined the bite marks on her body and he also came to the conclusion that the girl had likely done them to herself, just as his assistant had suggested. Nonplussed, he signed off on her removal from the prison and transferred to the National Psychopathic Hospital in Wanderleong as a damage limitation measure in order to prevent the prison becoming involved in a scandal. After the story had hit the press, there was a very real concern for the prison authorities of a deluge of curious visitors hoping to see Clarita for themselves and for the prison to spiral into a farce. Dr. Lara admitted the forms to the psychopathic hospital on the grounds that Clarita was a suspected epileptic and recommended that she be examined for the symptoms of insanity. Despite the formalities, however, for reasons unknown, Clarita's transfer was not carried out as planned a matter which became apparent on the following day when a spate of visitors came to the prison asking to see Clarita 
just as he had feared. Hoping to be able to tell the visitors that Clarita was no longer a resident, he was set back when he was called upon out of the blue to accompany the visitors to her cell. His visit was brief and once again reasonably flippant. I talked to Clarita and inquired whether she is the girl as described suffering from the bites as told by the newspaper reporters and she answered affirmatively in her native tongue. She was nervous and childish, comparable with her age and lack of educational training, but was polite. I asked her if we could see the bites that we had heard about. Clarita informed us that we should return sometime past midday, about two o'clock, when the thing causing the bites would come again. I told her that if I became convinced of someone else biting her, I would try my best to bring her to the Philippines International Fair for exhibition. Clarita smilingly took the joke with the comment that she would be happy for that as she would, no doubt, make plenty of money. However, I could not wait for the bites to appear, so I left about five minutes to twelve on May the 13th. That afternoon, when it became clear the attacks were a sustained problem and Clarita was suffering from a high fever, she was moved from her cell to the San Lazaro Hospital, one of the oldest hospitals in Manila, established in the 16th century to care for patients with leprosy. Her stay at the hospital, however, was brief, as Dr. Lara promptly ordered that she be returned at 2pm in order that she might show him the thing's return, as she had earlier promised. At 2.30pm, Clarita, who was, by now unconscious and suffering from a high-grade fever, was once again taken to the doctor's office back in Bilibid Prison, this time to be examined by Dr. Lara and over 30 of his medical interns from the University of Santo Tomas. Having gathered at the prison for their class, Dr. Lara took it upon himself to widen their education by having them meet and observe Clarita. Suggesting she was in some kind of trance, the doctor pricked her with pins and poked her with his pen, noting to his pupils that she had appeared to not feel nor recognise any of the stimuli. After several minutes of her lying unconscious, she eventually came to and the attacks continued, just as she had promised, this time in front of an entire class of witnesses. Equipped with magnifying lens and with an unbelieving mind about this biting phenomena, I scrutinised carefully and exposed parts of her body, the arms, hands and neck, to find out whether they had the biting impressions. I saw the reddish, human-like bite marks on the arms. She was still soft in the entire body and could not stand up by herself. One of my assistants, a cadaver technician, Alfonso by name, helped carry her to a bed for her to rest during this state of partial trance. Alfonso got hold of her body and deposited her on the prepared bed, placing both her hands over her in order that they would not hang downward. At that very instant, this girl in a semi-trance loudly screamed repeatedly the word Arai, a scream of pain in Tagalog, and when I removed Alfonso's hand from Clarita's, I saw with my unbelieving eyes the clear marks of impressions of human-like teeth from both the upper and lower jaws. It was a little moist in the area bitten on the dorsal aspect of the left hand, and the teeth impressions were mostly from the form of the front or incisor teeth. Seeing these with my unbelieving eyes, yet I could not understand nor explain how they were produced, as her hand had all the time been held away from the reach of her mouth, and that the place where the bite impressions occurred on the dorsal of the left hand, was the very place held by my assistant Alfonso. I knew she could not bite herself, nor could Alfonso, who does not possess a single tooth, having recently had them extracted by a dentist. I am also sure that I did not bite the girl, 
causing the impression to appear on her hand. Not finding any possible explanation insofar as my human experience in medical training is concerned, I kept my mouth shut, but not my mind. Whilst Dr. Lara was having this dramatic turn of about face, Clarita continued to scream, convulse, and sporadically stiffen and lash out. The attack lasted a full 20 minutes before she once again fell into a trance-like unconsciousness, lasting nearly 10 minutes before she came to, apparently completely back to normal. While she sat upright in her chair, she calmly answered a barrage of questions from the curious interns and told them of her childhood growing up in Bacalod. Throughout, Dr. Lara noted that she remained relaxed and answered everything put to her sanely and intelligently. The doctor seized the opportunity to hear the description of the mystery attackers straight from the horse's mouth, and upon asking her who it was carrying out the biting, was told that there are two who are alternately biting her, one big, black, hairy, human-like fellow, very tall, with two sharp eyes, two sharp canine teeth, long beard like a Hindu, hair on the extremities and chest, wearing a black garment with a little whitish piece on the back resembling a hood. His feet are about three times the size of normal human feet. The other fellow is a very small one, about two or three feet tall allegedly, also black, hairy and ugly. The days following this medical examination were equally as harrowing for Clarita, who continued to suffer from the attacks whilst in her prison cell and in numerous doctor's offices where she was taken for examination. On the 15th, she had a run-in with the chief jailer, Captain Antonio Ganibi, who had been overseeing her case and supervising her while she was being examined by medical officers. That evening, he had taken her to his office where she had played around, crawling under his desk. As she crawled out from the desk, she asked the captain if he knew where her crucifix was, which she normally wore, but had found it was now missing. After his reply in the negative, she told him to inspect his pockets, just to be sure, and upon pulling them out in order to prove to her that he did not have the symbol, found it inexplicably amongst his belongings, despite it not having been there moments before. When he returned the necklace to Clarita, she threatened him in a dark tone, telling him not to worry her anymore, else it would be your neck. Captain Ganibi shrugged this threat off. In his role as chief jailer, he had more than likely heard it all before, probably several times a week. That was, at least, until the following day, when he heard the news that Dr. Manuel Ramos, who had come to the prison on the afternoon of the 15th to interview Clarita, had died of a heart attack. During his visit, Dr. Ramos had been outspoken towards Clarita, telling her that he thought her symptoms a hoax in order to seek attention, much to Clarita's chagrin. The sudden death of the doctor the following day cast his own curse from the bizarre inmate in a whole new, far more concerning light. So too did the examinations continue. The mayor, Arsenio Laxon, now deeply troubled by the level of interest the press was showing in the story and concerned that the entire country was being judged and ridiculed, ordered Dr. Lara to examine Clarita in front of the reporters. Stuffed into a medical room in the prison on the 19th of May, over 100 reporters watched on as the doctor pricked her with pins as Clarita lay in an unconscious state and then witnessed her flailing and convulsing, screaming about her attackers taking turns biting her. After the attack ceased, she was asked to draw the thing, but when she attempted it, the pencil apparently appeared to fly from her hand across the room. The second time that she was asked to draw, 
She screwed up the paper and chewed on both the scrunched up ball and the pencil. After this bewildering display, the doctors concluded that she must be suffering from some sort of peculiar psychiatric condition, with the strong consensus being hysteria psychoneurosis, and the bite marks explained away as a psychomatic symptom of the stresses of the condition, much like the more familiar hives. Another theory put forward was that Clarita was, in a dissociative state, biting herself while remaining completely unaware, despite the fact that no one actually saw her bite herself. Some of the more grounded theories lay in epilepsy, or delusions brought on through malnutrition, and of course the standard catch-all of insanity. There were some doctors who were more sympathetic to Clarita's condition, leaning towards the supernatural as an answer, but they were few and far between, and less likely to give their names to the press, who were coasting on a narrative that felt decidedly tongue-in-cheek. One man, however, was about to step into the frame and change all of that, certain that he had the answer to all of Clarita's woes. Somehow, having missed the stories of Clarita in the Manila newspapers, Lester Sumrall first heard of the case of Clarita Villanueva on the local English-language radio station DZFM, a current affairs and talk show station set up initially by the occupying Americans and handed over to the Philippines state in 1946, two years after the gaining of independence. Sumrall, an American-born pastor and evangelist, was in the Philippines as part of his evangelist travels, hoping to found a church in Manila with his wife, Louise. The pair had met in South America in 1943 and married a year later. Together, they had spent much of the early 1950s travelling throughout Southeast Asia and spent a significant amount of time within the Philippines. As the announcer introduced the broadcast of Dr. Lara's 45-minute long interview with Clarita, Summerall became captivated. The interview had been broadcast not to shock, but in order to downplay the sensationalist parts of the stories, with doctors giving their opinions on the case all of which remained thoroughly grounded. Sumrall, however, had heard the girl's screams, heard of how she spoke of the thing and of how it bit her every night, and as the show wrapped up, he had come to his own conclusions. I turned to my wife and said, that girl is not sick and the doctors are helpless before such an enemy. Her cry is the cry of the damned and doomed. The girl is demon-possessed. It was impossible for me to sleep after listening to the programme. I walked the floor, crying to God to deliver the poor girl in the city jail. But the longer I prayed, the heavier the load became upon my soul. I said, Oh God, if the devil is in that girl, you can cast him out. Please do it. After praying until morning, God spoke to my heart. If you will go to the jail and pray for her, I will deliver her. But I didn't want to go. I found myself answering, No God, I can never go to that place. Scientists, professors, legal experts and even spiritualists have been trying to help that girl. They have all had adverse publicity in the newspapers. I cannot go. The Lord replied, If you will go and pray for her, I will deliver her. No, was my reply. But I found I could no longer pray for her. When I cried for her deliverance, my conscience stopped me, saying, You are not sincere, for you refuse to go and see her. Finally, I decided to go to Bilibid Prison and pray for the girl. With all the press fervour around the case, and with the government's official line to downplay every notion of supernatural involvement, it wasn't going to be especially easy for Sumrall to gain access to Clarita in order to examine her for himself. Fortunately, he had spent his time in Manila doing a great deal of networking, 
and after speaking to his highly connected church architect, Leopoldo Coronel, a meeting was arranged for him with the mayor of Manila. The mayor would certainly be able to see to it that he would have access to the girl. But first, he needed to convince him that his solution was the right one. Seeing few other options, however, the mayor was actually fairly easy to talk around, and he gave Sumrall permission to access the prison on the condition that he would not hold anyone but himself responsible for any injuries that he might suffer whilst there. Having convinced the mayor, Sumrall next had to speak to Dr. Lara and assure him that he both knew what he was doing and that he had the solution to Clarita's attack. Upon his arrival at the prison, he visited the doctor in the morgue, where the pair had a frank discussion concerning all that had been going on behind the tall concrete walls. Sumrall found the doctor, much like the mayor, much easier to convince than he had expected. Having been a sceptic initially, Dr. Lara had had his faith rocked by Clarita's behaviour, with even the newspapers reporting on him becoming shaky after witnessing the events in Clarita's cell. Specifically, Dr. Lara mentions in his report the moment when he had witnessed Clarita's finger displaying bite marks whilst Alfonso had held her hand, a story which he recounted to Sumrall in the morgue, concluding, Reverend, I am humble enough to admit that I am a frightened man. With the doctor leaning towards his side, Sumrall then explained his own theory of what had been happening in the prison, telling the doctor that in life there are three main powers. Positive power, that of a creative and benevolent god, human power, and negative power, which he explained as the malevolent and sinister power of the devil. If Clarita was not acting under god nor human power, then she must, he reasoned with the doctor, be therefore acting under the power of the devil. After walking the doctor down this logical cul-de-sac, he offered to pray for Clarita and to exorcise her demons, delivering her from the influence of the negative power. As part of the preparations, Summerall requested that no further medication be given to the girl and no other religious men should have access to pray for her. Apparently, this was in order that Jesus would gain all the glory. Agreeing to Summerall's conditions, a meeting was set up between the pastor and Clarita for the following morning at 8.30am. Summerall left the prison and returned home to fast in order to prepare himself for the spiritual battle that lie ahead. The following morning, Lester Sumrall returned at 8.30am, as promised, accompanied by a string of reporters desperate to hang on to the pastor's coattails and gain entry to the prison in order to witness the coming events for themselves. Concerned that he would be made a fool of in the press, Sumrall was hesitant to allow any of them in to see what was about to unravel. However, after talking with many of them and learning that they were largely sympathetic to his beliefs, he conceded and one by one they all packed into the women's block and made their way to the prison chapel, a small, steel-barred room with a dilapidated Roman Catholic altar at one end, a single wooden bunk and a pair of tired wooden chairs. Here, the motley crew assembled and waited for the arrival of Clarita, who was summoned and arrived moments after. When she saw Sumrall amongst the crowd, she motioned towards him and yelled, I don't like you, in his direction. A strange utterance, given that she had not spoken English until that point, and it had been presumed that she could not speak any other language but her native tongue. Unperturbed by the greeting, Sumrall approached Clarita and sat down in front of her in the remaining empty wooden chair. He then greeted her with a smile and explained that he had come to the prison to deliver her from evil in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Far from being thrilled at this prospect, 
Clarita instead began screaming that the thing would kill her, flying into a rage, crying, begging Sumrall to leave her alone and complaining of being further bitten by her attackers. Sumrall took the chance to see for himself the by now infamous bite marks. I was shocked. They were the terrible teeth marks so severe that some of the small blood vessels underneath the skin were broken. For the rest of the morning, a fierce noise continued to erupt through the prison from the chapel as Clarita convulsed and screamed, cursing Sumrall in English, the devils apparently speaking through her as she told him that they would never leave. Sumrall replied in kind that he was there to deliver her from evil and prayed aloud for her salvation. The press reported on the bite marks seen across her body from that morning. The sight sent a cold shiver down our spine. It did not in any way resemble a human bite. In the first place, it was too large for human teeth. In the second place, the bite was completely round. Anybody may find out for himself by actual tests on his own arm that a human bite is elliptical. And finally, we were awed to discover that all the teeth marks appear to have been made by molars. By lunchtime, Clarita appeared to be exhausted, collapsing from a wild fit into silence, refusing to speak anymore. Sumrall shook and trembled from exhaustion himself, and he decided that it was time to call an end to the day's proceedings, promising to return again the next day to continue what he called Clarita's deliverance. As the room emptied, Sumrall too left the prison and returned home to ponder the morning's events, pray, and fast in preparation for another tough day. On the second day of Sumrall's exorcism, he returned to the old Billibid prison with two assistants, Reverend Arthur Allberg and Reverend Robert McAllister. He also paid a visit to the prison officials and asked that they keep the crowds away, limiting access to only a small handful of outsiders, if they must allow any at all. That morning had brought a shock to Sumrall when he saw that his photograph had been emblazoned across the front page of the Daily Mirror alongside the headline, the thing defies Protestant pastor. This time, in a much calmer, less crowded chapel than the previous day, Sumrall once again sat facing Clarita on the rickety wooden chairs. He gained a small boost when Clarita told him that she had not been attacked at all the previous night, though he was sure that the work was not over yet. A description of the second day's events survives in an article written in the Philippine Free Press, whose reporters managed to sneak into the chapel shortly after Sumrall's arrival. Reverend Sumrall knelt before the girl and took her hands into his. He asked her if she knew him, and she said that she did, but after a moment, while the minister was invoking the Lord to liberate this little creature from the devil, Clarita's countenance changed. She became wild-eyed and screamed at the minister before her, telling him to go away. The minister alternated prayer and sacred song with invocation for the Lord's help and exhortations against the devil, but Clarita continued to scream. When Clarita seemed to cower away from him in unrestrained fright, he covered her eyes with his hands and told her not to be afraid as he was going to bind the hands and feet of the devil that morning. The struggle continued. At intervals, Clarita was as meek as a lamb and, at the prodding of the minister, said that she liked Jesus Christ. The very next moment, however, she grew violent and cursed God and told the minister to go away. At one stage of the proceedings, Clarita became so violent and hysterical that she fainted. The minister then turned around and informed those present that they had better go down on their knees and pray for your own salvation. Everybody was on his knees in a jiffy. 
perspiring and growing visibly weary by his efforts, Reverend Sumrall resumed the task at hand. He slapped Clarita a couple of times and she came too, but in no time at all she was screaming again. After about an hour, Clarita's face seemed to soften. She became more attentive to the minister before her. In reply to all questions, she told him that she liked Jesus Christ. At this state, the minister recited the Lord's Prayer and Clarita followed him. Then the minister asked if Clarita was still afraid of the thing and she replied in the negative. She indicated that the thing went out of the window and then the three ministers sang a joyous hallelujah. Clarita appeared worn out and she slowly stretched herself on her wooden bed to sleep. Just as Summerall had thought that his battle had been won, Clarita, however, was struck by another fit just as he had begun wrapping up for the day. Why have you returned? he asked them. She is unclean and we have a right to live in her, came the reply from Clarita, once again in English. The same thing happened for a third time that morning. As Lester Sumrall made to leave, Clarita began screaming once more. It is only you who desires us to leave, she yelled at the pastor. This time, Sumrall prayed once more that they leave, and when Clarita confirmed that they had once more left through the window, Sumrall explained to her that she must resist their return and pray in the name of Jesus that they leave. He then ordered for Clarita to be served food and left the prison to return home. First, stopping to ask the few press that had snuck in to not write up their story of the day, to which she was told in no short terms that that was not going to happen. The story of Clarita had been running by now for several weeks and had gained an awful lot of traction throughout the country and even seen a considerable presence in columns outside of the country, with Australian and US press in particular attaching themselves to the story calling Clarita Dracula Girl and following along with the tales of the bizarre progress that crept out of the country. The mayor, who was apparently attempting to protect the image of the country, was doing few favours to his own cause when he told the international press that this is something that goes way back to the dim, distant past. That evening, at around 8pm, Clarita, who had slept off the events of the morning, fell back into a final fit in her cell. Now much calmer, she had asked the on-duty prison guard if she could borrow his pocket knife to cut her fingernails. Knowing that it would be against prison rules to allow an inmate the use of a sharp instrument, he instead insisted that he could cut her nails for her. And as soon as he began, however, Clarita began screaming at the top of her lungs, yelling that the thing was standing behind the guard, watching her from over his shoulder. She stood, apparently remembering what someone had instructed her to do, and yelled out for the invisible demons to leave her lunging out and grabbing at the invisible air over the head of the seated guard before collapsing onto the floor in a stiffened state. As the doctors picked her up and placed her on the wooden bed, witnesses said that they pried open her clenched fists, only to find a fistful of long, black, coarse hair. This was given to Dr. Lara to examine, who later said in his report that he believed it to be not from any part of a human body. It was a final fit and a dramatic conclusion to what had been an incredibly trying and thoroughly bizarre ordeal for Clarita. But at last it appeared that her possession by the beings that had become known nationally as The Thing were once and for all truly vanquished. After she was roused from her collapse, she was returned to her prison cell and left to rest and prepare herself for her coming trial, which was by now rapidly approaching. On May the 27th, Clarita Villanueva stood trial on charges of vagrancy and prostitution. As part of her defence, she told the judge, Almeida Lopez, 
of her experience in the prison fighting off the devils with Lester Sumrall. She managed to avoid prosecution and further incarceration, but was ordered to be transferred to Welfareville for observation, a compound in the city of Manila established in 1925 by the government in order to take care of the country's less fortunate children, orphans, delinquents, vagrants, and abused young people from across the Philippines were sent to Welfareville in order to gain proper care, education, training, and occasionally correction. During her stay in Welfareville, Lester Sumrall visited her twice, finding what he called a perfectly normal Filipina. This was a sentiment that the authorities of the girls' school in the institution tended to agree to, and when Sumrall petitioned the court for her release, it was promptly granted and a foster family was found to take care of her, organised by Sumrall. Under the care of the Sedora family, she recovered well, but eventually left Manila due to the unwanted attention that she continued to receive, long after her story had faded from the front pages of the press. She headed north, towards a town named Luzon, taking up residency there for a while, and eventually returning to Bacolod, her hometown, where she married and settled down to a life that returned to peaceful anonymity. The events that had taken place during the spring of 1953 had rocked Manila, stretching out across the country and yielded widespread fame. As thanks for his help, the mayor of Manila granted Sumrall the building permit he needed to build his church, waiving all administration fees. The Bethel Temple Church was built as the first Protestant church in the Philippines, and it still exists today. During its founding, the church gained considerable free publicity due to the exorcism, which Sumrall himself admitted gave them recognition in the city, which otherwise would have taken many years to achieve. According to Sumrall, the deliverance of Clarita Villanueva also made up a large part of the explanation for the 150,000 Filipinos that joined the Protestant church in the years following. Life in the Philippines for those involved in the affair of the thing was not all sunshine and rainbows, however. Captain Antonio Ganibi, the chief officer of the old Bilibid prison, who had previously been cursed by Clarita and had been watching over his shoulder ever since, fell ill shortly after the events of May in 1953. He began losing weight, and though the doctors could find nothing physically wrong with him, he retired to the countryside in order to rest and recuperate. However, his illness progressed slowly until his eventual passing. This, Summer would later heavily insinuate, was a direct consequence of his demonic curse. So what happened in Clarita's cell during the attacks throughout her incarceration? Was it, just as Lester Sumrall declared, a case of demonic possession and exorcism, or simply the sad tale of an unwell young woman who had lived a difficult life under the punishment of her extreme circumstances? It's easy to jump towards the latter. However, in doing so, we do have to ignore or disregard a slew of witnesses that number into the hundreds. That said, however, it does bear remembering that the written history of the case is more than a little one-sided with Sumrall himself creating a vast monopoly on the material, all with a heavily religious bent that channels his evangelist background in no subtle way, with a handful of sensationalist newspaper reports, just as an aside. The possession and exorcism of Clarita Villanueva is ultimately a poorly recorded piece of thoroughly strange history, and whether or not any of the events were real, it all seems highly unlikely. With so many witnesses, however, is nonetheless a fascinating tale. At the time the events happened, the Philippines Free Press posed the following question from an employee of the old Bilibid prison who had witnessed the affair aimed towards those that would be sceptical. 
It is like the wind. The wind cannot be seen, but it can inflict physical damage. The thing may be likened to the wind. The thing also cannot be seen. Like the wind, it also can cause physical damage. The wind is real. How about the thing? That was the absolutely bizarre and probably, well, definitely thoroughly sensational story of Clarita Villanueva. I guess we'll dive into that a little bit after this short advert breaks. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books and when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are The Complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories. And that's dark histories, all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30 second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers.
welcome back. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Definitely a, a highly sensationalized story. I think it's fair to say that straight off the bat. The, the main problems with this story is, firstly, that it was obviously a highly sensationalized story. And it was only really reported in a small handful of press reports. And they were all very sensational. So straight away, like that source is sort of compromised and, and not, not very good. The second source really for this, and really this, the only other main source, there is one other source, which I'll, I'll talk about in a sec, but the, the main second source all comes from Lester Sumrall himself. Sumrall plays pretty fast and loose with the term facts for a start. And, and secondly, it's, it's really self-serving. And I don't want to be mean, but you can see that he's very much writing it from that kind of colonial aspect of I, I saved the day with my sophisticated uh, religion and, you know, helped bring up this uneducated native. You know, it's, it's written, it's, it's definitely got that kind of edge to it. And, and so, you know, that's, that, that definitely plays into it really, really heavily, I think. And, and, and I say there is one other source and that comes from the doctor and, and that is actually quite interesting in that he wrote a report and in the report, like, he, he changed tacks quite considerably. At first, he was very sceptical and very scientific about it. And then after he witnessed it for himself, he, he basically sort of span on a dime. And uh, I think that's the right term. That was very American terminology, wasn't it? Um, but he, he, he basically kind of like did a complete 180 and became a firm believer and he wrote it up in his report and his report is probably the most interesting of the sources but still I think is is heavily compromised as as they all are so so you know I think straight off the bat that's the first thing to say is like this story is it's not exactly using like great sources so it's it's already questionable that said I, I don't think it makes that any less of an intriguing story right like it definitely happened these things definitely you know, places exist, people existed, it all definitely happened. It's all, it's all really interesting. So it's, you know, it, it's fun from that perspective. Mainly, my biggest issues is, is, is Sumrall and his kind of attitude towards it, that very colonial evangelist attitude towards it. Um, and that, for me, is my, the biggest issue that I have. When you look at it from a, a general perspective, you've got to say that, um, you know, the, the, the very, when it started, that sounded to me heavily like sleep paralysis. You know, she was laying in bed, it's 2.30 p.m., 2.30 um, a.m. in the morning or something, like, you know, like, like well past midnight anyway. She'd been kept awake by stones being thrown through the bars, which, I mean, that could have come from anyone for a start, could have been anything. It could have just been like a noise that was sort of keeping her awake. So she was already like probably drifting in and out of sleep. So that's like prime, really, for sleep paralysis to come in. So... You know, that to me sounds very much like sleep paralysis. You know, he was in the rafters above her. He jumped onto her chest and like held her down and started biting her. Terrifying as that sounds. And, and you know, I've only suffered sleep paralysis once myself and I, it, it was terrifying. So terrifying as it is, there is like a, a, a natural explanation for that. So, yeah, I think probably that was probably sleep paralysis. After that, I don't know. That's where things get, you know, off the wall, right? Obviously, like you, I, I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you'd probably guess by now that I'm fairly sceptical about the story. But how do you explain away the teeth marks? I don't know. You know, unless she was biting herself, which I think is a likelihood. 
But then all the witnesses that said that she weren't. And the one that interests me is the one that turned the doctor because like, like it, it, was, an, it was strong enough evidence to turn the doctor from being sceptical to on board, which leads you to believe that he, he probably wasn't fooled that easily by her biting her own hand. I, I find the explanation of, of a sort of psychosomatic kind of stress-based thing quite, quite good, actually. And, and I say this because a few years back, I mean, going back quite a while now, I had a friend who was doing a master's degree and um, she broke out in these like, like rash, I guess you can say, due to stress from, from a degree that she was doing. And um, it didn't look like a rash, you know, it was these like circular lumps in weird kind of patches on her arms and legs. And it looked not like bite marks, but it didn't look like any rash that I'd ever seen, you know. So it, these things can happen. And, and if you look at Clarita's life, she would have been undeniably like suffering a great deal of like stress. And I mean, her life was horrible. I mean, she'd been a child prostitute essentially from like 12 years old and walked the streets and, you know, essentially lived like grew up on, on the streets. You know, her life was pretty terrible. And then she was arrested and put in prison. So she was suffering pretty, pretty badly. Which leads me on to another thing, which is like, you know, the state of her mental health must have been in tatters at that point. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and, and like try and um, like diagnose her with one or the other because uh, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. And I think it can be quite offensive when people start, you know, especially on podcasts, when you get podcast hosts that start diagnosing mental illnesses that they, they have absolutely no uh, like knowledge of. So I'm not going to sit here and do that. But I am going to say that... It, it, it's fairly obvious that by that point, her mental fortitude was probably not at its top. You know, like it probably wasn't in great condition. I think it's fairly safe to say at least that. So, you know, I, I, the idea that these kind of bite marks could have been some, some sort of like psychosomatic um, rash, I actually find that to be um, like a possibility. But otherwise, was she doing it for attention and that plays into it. You know, was she genuinely unwell? I think that is a, like I say, like a, a likelihood. Do I think that she was being tormented by the devil? Absolutely not. Nevertheless, I do think it's a fascinating story. You know, I think, I, I don't want to be too down on Lester Sumrall because I think that, that largely, you know, she was cured eventually and I do think he had a hand in that. You know, I, I don't think the exorcism did anything. I think the exorcism was probably like most exorcisms a, a fair bit of abuse but after that you know he, he helped her get in this like welfare bill and he helped find her an a, adoptive family and you know helped her get back onto her feet essentially so he, he he did sort of in a roundabout way sort of cure her I guess and and did help her out greatly I'd imagine because left to her own devices I, I can't see her of, of being able to have had the means to sort out the bureaucracy needed for that for that those similar steps. So, you know, that's great that that was happened, but I don't think he exercised any demons. Um, definitely not. One of the other sources, and it's not, I, I'm, I'm not going to call it a source, actually. I can't call it a source. I didn't, I don't think I sourced it in the show notes and I, I couldn't. Lester Summer also made a documentary about this and um, I, I, will, I will put a link to it in the show notes because it's really worth watching. It is beyond bad. Firstly, it's 
you know, it's it's all sort of directed and and funded by Lester Sumrall, and he 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 acts in it as well. Like he he appears in it, but it's just absolutely awful. It's like nineteen fifties or sixties, whenever it was made, and it and it and it's very like it's got that kind of B movie exploitation cinema kind of vibe to it, but worse. It's it's even like one step below that. And, it, and it's just awful. It's definitely worth watching. It's half an hour long and it's terrible acting. Everything about it terrible. But one of the things that I found like really jarring and really quite terrible was um, like the depiction of Clarita Villanueva. It, it shows her as this glamorous dancer and she, she leaves this bar in the opening scene wearing like a designer dress with like a designer handbag and high heels and... She's all glamorous and, and good looking, like, and, and an adult woman for a start, and has absolutely no bearing on what the real situation would have been like. Because Clarita Villanueva would have been, you know, a street urchin, essentially. Like, she'd been, like I say, like a child prostitute. So to put her in this light in this documentary was jarring and quite distasteful, I thought. But I mean, definitely, I, I think it's worth watching it anyway. Um, if nothing, if for no other reason, it's worth watching just for the, the scenery, like, you know, like the, the footage of Melilla in, in the 50s, because that's, that's great. Um, but if you like B-movies or exploitation cinema, then you, you'll absolutely love this. You'll be like absolutely at home because it's, it's awful. But yeah, I just wanted to sort of stick that in before we wrapped up. So overall, though, really fascinating story. So, you know, if you don't agree and you, with me and you think that it was absolutely a case of demonic possession, you're more than welcome to disagree and, and you know, everyone's welcome to their opinion, of course, and, and you're more than welcome to sort of try and talk me around. Um, I'm always up to hearing different opinions. Um, I, like I say, I am sceptical, but I do come into these things with an open mind and, and you know, if you've got other explanations that you think might be more supernatural, then, then feel free to let me know. Feel free to get in touch. You can do so. Uh, all the links to get in touch with me are in the show notes. You can also just go to darkhistories.com. You can find my email there, which is contact at darkhistories.com. You'll also find links to all of the social media. Um, if you want to support, you can find links to that there. And you can also find links to our Discord community server um, and come on and chat all about Clarita Villanueva with people if that's what you fancy doing. So yeah, you can find all of those links basically just to check out the show notes. It's all in there. Um, and if not, go to darkhistories.com and it'll all be there as well. So thank you very much for listening. I'm going to leave that there this week. I'll see you in a couple of weeks for the next episode. So until then, take care, stay well, and yeah, I'll see you real soon. Sleep tight. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for your kind support.